should say before handing over to you, this is a book in a series edited by you on the worlds of the a very uh, serious and significant uh, series uh, indeed, and this is the 13th um, book published in that series. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll walk about. I always get very nervous when I come to uh, come to come to Oxford, being a sort of provincial type from Wales. Um, you know, I hold on to my notes a lot. Very worried about it all. I set the bar very high by saying right at the outset that this is a terrific book. It's not just a terrific book; it's a unique book. Uh, as was said, the thesis upon which it was based was examined here in the early 1960s. Uh, Amateur's mother was a student of C.C. Davis, reader in Indian history at the university. And out of the blue a few years ago, onto my desk arrived a proposal from Amateur that he published the thesis. Now, we get lots of these um, proposals coming in from authors all over the place, and many of them propose just to do that, to publish the thesis. But this is unique, because what Amateur has done in a most remarkable way, is update and revise the thesis. He's put a terrific amount of his own labour into this, and intellectually, he's brought this volume right up to date. If you look at the references and footnotes, you'll see that his reading is far more extensive than mine has ever been, and uh, it's a great credit to him that he's, in a sense, switched professions, because he's a chemical engineer by training, and he's now a fully-fledged historian with a published book. And I think there's probably more to come from his pen. Uh, Peter and I will be twisting his arm later to suggest that he writes a book on British foreign policy, because I think he knows more about that than most people in the room today. This is the 13th book in the series. Um, we began in 2004, and it was a great joy to me to find out that Amateur's lucky number is 13, as it was the lucky number of his mother. What he explores is the career of Minto, Lord Minto, but he does much more than that because he will tell you about the tension that existed in Britain between the foreign policy of the East India Company, a private trading organisation, and the foreign policy of Britain during the time of the Napoleonic War. There was a tension that existed between a policy of retrenchment and caution, and yet on the other hand, a policy advocated by the likes of Wellesley, future Duke of Wellington, who advocated a very aggressive, forward foreign policy. Minto was caught between the two in a way, and had to act as the arbiter of that foreign policy. Now Minto, therefore, was the architect of the defence of India versus Napoleon. And this is not just narrowly about India, it's about the crucial role that the East India Company played in the wider strategic war against Napoleon. And indeed, he was the architect of some quite remarkable gains that Britain made at the peace at the end of that war in 1815. What he's done, therefore, is restore and enhance the reputation of Minto as a leading figure in Britain, British India, and the wider world itself. As I said, it's a remarkable book, a terrific book. If you can't afford to buy it, although it's a knockdown price, I suggest that you all read it, because it really does throw extraordinary new light on a very important part of British history. Without further ado, it's over to Amazon. Thank you so much, Professor Boyle. Thank you so much, Peter. I don't know where to begin. And to Faisal and to Maxime for their incredible support. Uh, this has all come together uh, through the grace of the divine. And uh, there is nothing more to say. Uh, I'm, in fact, speechless. Uh, which is a rare occurrence. <laughs> and we have Alison sitting there from LMH. We have my mother's second generation sitting here. People who helped her, who interacted with her. Professor Burunde's daughter. We have Tanya Brisby, who is my grandmother's uh, link to the third generation. <laughs> we have uh, Fred Evans, we have Professor Michael Dockrill, uh, my father's friends, my father who was instrumental in getting my mother to apply to Oxford and come here. We have Shukanna, the daughter of Professor Thopun Rajudri. So you'll uh, forgive me, and Pukumashi sitting over there, Madhuri Bosch representing my mother's family. So you'll forgive me for thinking that this is, of course, one big happy family, which it is. So, 
and uh, to come across Faisal, I had to go literally from door to door to door. This was after the book was out, so I'll work backward. After the book was out, I thought that the first most appropriate place to present the work would be where it started, 54 years ago. And uh, so I went to the Bodleian, I said, okay, what does it take <laughs> to set up a talk somewhere, uh, do you do these things? And I said, no, go here, go there, go the other way. And finally, it landed on Professor Faisal Devji's desk. And he said in one shot that this will suit our South Asia seminar series. This is a lot of the way that the book itself came about. So I used to tease my mother, right? So that's all you know is Lord Minto's foreign policy, 1807 to 1813. You don't know very much more than that. And she used to say, yeah, yeah, of course, that's the case, and so on. And then we were, she got me inspired in history. And I used to keep saying also, as a byline, I want to do a PhD in history, PhD in history. But that's not how it works in India. In India, in the 10th grade, your life is decided. Because in a national exam, you do, your grades decide whether you'll do science or arts or business. And you're locked in. And God help you if you are in arts and the social sciences. And it's a, a caste system hierarchy where from science you can go to business and arts, from business you can go to arts, but from arts you can't go anywhere else. So if you are fascinated by social sciences, then so be it, you can, you can build a future. And this is what you're told, a doctor, lawyer, or an engineer. That's it, you don't have any option. So I was fascinated by history, geography, and the social sciences. And here I am as a chemical engineer developing drug products, right? So anyway, so Ma came to Oxford. She came from a very conservative uh, Hindu background. And it was unheard of for women in her peers, for example, uh, to set foot outside Calcutta, let alone, you know, traverse the oceans and come to, uh, to Britain. And so she did. She came on a Commonwealth scholarship and she established herself. And Cuthbert Colin Davis, who I have to say, these are pioneering minds. Okay? They take on students, they mentor them, they guide them, they train them in their own image. And Cuthbert Colin Davis, this man who I've never met or never seen, I have the greatest respect for. He mentored both Guglu's father, Professor Borunde, and my mother. And they wrote their theses on subjects which were very similar. He wrote his on Henry Dundas and Ma on Lord Minto, which I'm coming to. And so the issue was, okay, to create a lineage, uh, an academic thought lineage that would integrate from various uh, aspects of history and sociology and anthropology. And the whole, uh, the integration of cultures. And if you read the thesis, that's exactly what it was. So Ma had her thesis in, in a stack like that, 500 pages, 500 pages of typewritten notes and handwritten notes. And these were fortunately scanned in a PDF file, okay? I'm sitting, so I've been talking to her for the last five years and saying, okay, we need to get this work published. So Cuthbert Colin Davis in October 1962, when she submitted the thesis, said, look, Amita, I can publish this work for you. She said, no, I'll take it back home and I'll publish it in India. So needless to say, 50 years goes by, 52 years go by, nothing is done. This work is not published. So, I'm talking to her in Shanghai. I'm sitting there at a pharmaceutical conference. I'm very inspired by old Shanghai. And I say, you know, why don't we write this book in a manner that Lord Minto would have thought of protecting the China trade? Doesn't that make perfect sense? She said, oh, of course that makes perfect sense. This is January 29, 2014. And the next day, she passes away. So, I have this book in my hands. 
it's a fortunately she had it pdf scanned all of the pages were pdf scanned so what i had to do was translate that to a word document which you could edit and so when i went there's a software program that you can use a pdf to word uh, software program that basically takes a pdf document and makes it a editable word document when i did that the result was gibberish because these are original minto references taken from the archives of the minto papers which were first made available to the public in 1958 okay in 1958 the national library of scotland purchased the minto papers at the university of edinburgh and that was the first time these papers were available to the public so ma had to go to the university of edinburgh <laughs> six months at a time and dig through these archives and in the bibliography of the book they literally described as in boxes which they probably still are in boxes papers minto diaries minto papers admiralty letters you name it it's there so when i found that the net net was gibberish i said okay i'm going to cut and paste every single paragraph and copy it handwrite it or type it into a word document it took me a mere 8 months right so 8 months so i did it and then i proceeded to submit it to 20 quote unquote historical publishers most of them wrote back almost immediately and said sorry this work is too esoteric it won't fly it won't sell blah the blah the blah one person wrote back and said this is not only an interesting work and the founding editor Peter Soden is writing these words. The founding editor has not only heard of this work, he has been tracking this thesis to see when it would be published. So I said, God on high. Step one. So I wrote a little preamble. What happened before Minto? And wrote a little postscript. Didn't alter the main body of the work. and sent it across so peter soden began a series of emails which began please could you please could you it sounds very endearing but it's not it was an order please could you meant you jolly well do this or else so every email began please could you one of the please could you was that yes i have sent it to my founding editor i have no idea who the founding editor is by the way i have no clue who this man is and he sends back this so peter accepted this email uh, this quote from this email and sent it back and said the founding editor thinks that the work is like a pudding it's a 50 year old pudding so it needs to be updated so the preamble and the postscript that you've written don't gel with the main text because it's new language and the references are new so could you please update every single chapter i said who me i'm a chemical engineer i develop drug products i'm going to do napoleon i'm going to do the french east india company what so my ambition to do a phd in history was realized very quickly because my office began to be filled with books from floor to ceiling on french privateers napoleon bonaparte the french east india company and lo and behold ma was there with me the whole time she was turning the pages and directing me to the spots so that the the flow of words into each chapter was almost automatic eh, unbelievable anyway <laughs> so it i resubmitted the document then peter began to bat on my behalf and hit some beautiful cover drives to the uh, editorial board <coughs> the work was circulated and in april of 2015 they said this is acceptable for publication and i was on my knees honestly because this is i didn't expect this at all the level of guidance the level of follow up 
it has been just incredible. So the idea was to frame Minto's foreign policy in the light of the French. The French East India Company, Napoleon Bonaparte riding high in Europe, these were a huge threat towards the end of the 1700s and the early 1800s. So I've just got some slides here, I'll just run through them and then we'll open it up to a wide-ranging discussion if that's okay. So without further ado, <coughs> so this quote is uh, one of my uh, favorite quotes and Edmund Burke, really, he stands astride the British foreign policy space in a way that no man has. Uh, one of my heroes, uh, he is one of my heroes for sure, because of his all-encompassing view of foreign policy, number one. Rational, fair, logical. I wish our world leaders were more like that today. Seriously. And another person who I really admire, and who is one of my heroes, is Professor Stanley Walpert. Stanley Walpert was a marine engineer when he arrived in Bombay in January 1948 and saw the ashes of Gandhi being immersed of the sea in uh, Chopati, Chopati Beach in Bombay. And he said, he saw millions of Indians just bringing the shore. And the idea to him was that, how could a nation be turned by one man, a whole nation come like this to pay their respects? He went back at the age of 21, a marine engineer, enrolled in an undergraduate degree in history at UPenn, did his PhD, and has become one of the foremost India experts. So I'd recommend one of his books. I mean, this is not a <laughs> book plug other than my own, but Shameful Flight is compulsory reading for everybody in this room. Shameful Flight by Stanley Walpert. It's an incredible text. So anyway, let me get on with this. So Burke, Burke was Minto's mentor. And Burke set the stage for all, for I think, what is all of British foreign policy with every decent governor general and every viceroy that followed since. Okay, so there you have my hero on the left, Gilbert, Murray, Elliot, Canyon Mound, and on the right you have literally four foot nine. His life-size statue is in uh, a museum uh, in uh, Denmark, and he's four foot nine, Napoleon Bonaparte. And when you look at that statue and when you look at that man, you really, you don't even think that uh, uh, such a man could literally stand astride an empire. So what Minto had to do essentially, and the book is also divided into these chapters, was to counter the French threat. And the way he did that was by, since India was the jewel in the crown, you had to protect the jewel in the crown by creating a buffer zone. So two things happened. At the end of the 1700s, at the end of the 1700s, the French were knocked out of mainland uh, India. But what happened was that they had established their bases in three islands, Mauritius, Bourbon, and Rodriguez. Mauritius was called L'Ile de France. And from there, they established privateering as an industry, which was officially sanctioned by Bonaparte. And so you could get a 350-ton ship as a business venture, and you could go on acts of piracy, kind of like Sir Francis Drake in the 1500s. So the French did this quite routinely, and they destroyed 15,000 tons of British shipping between 1806 and 1809. And that's an interesting coincidence because that was also, 1806 was the year of Napoleon's Milan and Berlin decrees. So they stabbed themselves in the foot, basically, the French, that is. And you can see the difference between the, so the French had an East India Company, the Dutch had an East India Company, the Danish had an East India Company, right? They didn't function half as well as the British East India Company. I'm not just saying that because of, I'm biased towards what I've written. But that's literally the case. And it's a question of discipline, it's a question of, again, training, mentorship, following up, you know, these basic things that a corporation has to perform. So anyway, these are a few of the highlights. So the East India Company was set up 
you know, has a very loose structure. And George III said that I do not want to nationalize the East India Company when, in spite of the fact that they were on a rampage, quote-unquote rampage, because free trade, Britain's definition of free trade was we want to trade, and we are going to trade at any and all costs. So, Robert Clive, Warren Hastings, these guys went on a free-for-all. They started to develop you know, personal relationships with the local uh, rulers, and it's the fault of India as well. We are so disunited, we had little fiefdoms, and we essentially allowed a trading company to become uh, like a mafia uh, warlord and a mafia gang. And when Siraj Dola essentially created uh, the black hole of, of Calcutta following uh, an initial victory in 1756, just prior to the Battle of Plassey, the crown could now be a support for the East India Company in terms of supplying them with arms. So we just created, by we I mean India, created additional problems for ourselves. So the Diwani was awarded to Robert Clive by Emperor Shah Alam and this led to an enormous accumulation of wealth. So what needed to be controlled was where is this wealth going? So the Fox North Regulating Act in 1773, they said that, okay, we want to hold on to this wealth, we want to control it. And the extreme um, backlash that happened as a result of that was the advocation of nationalization of the East India Company. George III was opposed to that completely. He said, I will not have this happen. And William Pitt, the younger, when he became Prime Minister in 1784, that was essentially his leadership which allowed the vote not to be cast for nationalization and the East India Company was still allowed to function uh, more or less in, independently. Another uh, highlight was Napoleon's conquest of Egypt, so 1799 to 1801 and this was, uh, the French also made a disastrous error in that the entire French fleet were parked in a bay outside Alexandria and uh, Lord Nelson was cruising by and he saw these French ships parked in this bay and said, good, ducks in a shooting gallery. So he proceeded to destroy the French fleet. So the French Grand Army was marooned in Egypt and Bonaparte himself took close to a hundred days to get back to France. The other thing that happened in uh, 1803 of course was uh, General Decain was sent to Mauritius, L'Ile de France, Bourbon and Rodriguez. And in 1807, two things that the French did uh, really uh, put the fear of God into the British. One was the Treaty of Finkenstein with Persia in May 1807 and in July with the Russians, the Treaty of Tilsit. So Persia became essentially a centre of negotiation between the French and the British where there was literally a battle to obtain the support of Fateh Ali Shah and uh, this went back and forth for a while and there's the Emperor Fateh Ali Shah and uh, three French uh, envoys, Jordan, Jouani and uh, third general and this was the response from the British side. So who do you think looks more scholarly? <laughs> so on the left is self-appointed Brigadier General Sir John Malcolm, later knighted, and on the right is Sir Harford Jones. So this was the response of the Crown to Persia, and that was the response of the East India Company to negotiating in Persia where uh, he were, where Malcolm uh, was sent, uh, John Malcolm was sent uh, by Minto to try to negotiate a place with the Persians and Harford Jones was sent on behalf of the Crown. So there was a little bit of clash and a little bit of friction between them 
but uh, it was all worked out in the end. And as Napoleon's defeats in Europe happened, they were reflected in foreign policy actions in the rest of the globe. So they had a direct impact. So Minto essentially created a buffer zone in Persia and also with Afghanistan, Sindh and Lahore. With Afghanistan, it was a quagmire in the 19th century. It is an unfortunate quagmire today. Nothing really has changed. It's all about warlords, it's all about uh, ancillary powers, it's about subsidiary treaties and uh, it's very difficult to get a handle on what is happening there. But nevertheless, it was an attempt to support the rulers. Similarly in Sindh, first, for the first time, uh, relations were re-established uh, in Lord Minto's uh, period uh, and also with Ranjit Singh in Lahore. So this is a very important uh, area of focus and Ranjit Singh also was a very powerful ruler of the Sikhs and he, his uh, ambitions also needed to be curtailed. So what the British did was said you can have everything on the right bank of the Sutlej and on the left bank the Cis Sutlej forms the buffer zone of our East India Company, the British territories between uh, you and us. And of course Sir Harford Jones managed to get a preliminary treaty in place with the Persians which was rather important in 1809. So the so what the French had done was basically they had stabbed themselves in their own feet. So Napoleon's Berlin and Milan decrees basically said that any trip a ship who trades with a British port or at a British port cannot come to any European port. That's number one. And number two is British goods will be banned from sale. So in this aspect you had huge amounts of East India Company goods remaining unsold at warehouses in London. So this was uh, quite a financial damper on the East India Company. So that's just a picture of Mauritius. And here um, there's also the situation of Java. So if you Remember your world map and uh, you have the Straits of Malacca. The Straits of Malacca are a tiny, is a tiny strip of water between essentially Malaysia and uh, Java, Sumatra, Java and so on. And that little strip of water is the only connection from the Bay of Bengal to the South China Sea. And that's the only route to southern China, to China. If you didn't have that route, You'd have, there was no way to go because you'd have to sail under, down under, through past uh, uh, Australia, up and through the uh, myriad islands of the uh, Philippines, which is absolutely no chance. So those straits, uh, the Straits of Malacca, are very crucial to preserving this China trade. So Java, which was Dutch, due to Napoleon's victories in Europe, became French. So there was a huge threat then if the French could re-establish their power in Java, what would happen? And Minto did something unprecedented. He actually led an invasion to Java and he actually participated in that. So that was quite incredible. To go, to be away from Calcutta for eight months while you're essentially putting your life perhaps at risk. And Java, the French had fortified. They had created a huge new battlement and uh, but nevertheless, Minto's forces were able to overcome this because, again, it's a question of who the French and the Dutch had as their soldiers. They had basically untrained tribesmen who were only too willing to run. So they didn't have mainstream uh, European forces on site in Java. So this is an essential problem that you have. And the French and Dutch also, the Dutch insisted on slave labor, which Burke, remember Burke? Burke influenced Minto to a degree of liberalism, getting rid of the slave trade, believing in labor unions. So these were all modern concepts developed by Minto. And while the Dutch had slave trade, obviously you can imagine that many of the locals were therefore not interested in siding with 
the French or the Dutch. They were not going to put their lives at risk. So that was a clear way to overcome these uh, challenges. So, yeah, so here you are. These are the Straits of Malacca, right through there. And that's the South China Sea. So to get to uh, China, you basically need to go through these straits. And otherwise, uh, you have uh, Australia below here. So it becomes uh, an extremely arduous. And this is the fort I was talking about, Cornelis. Uh, you can see the way it's constructed near a river. It's very difficult to uh, penetrate and get through these kind of battlements. So there was literally a siege. So uh, I won't say much more than this. This is the legacy of Lord Minto. So what happened was at the end at the Congress of Vienna in 1814, when uh, Napoleon's final defeat at Waterloo had happened, the British decided to return territories other than a few strategic ports which they held on to, like Malta, they held on to the Cape, they held on to La Ile de France, but they gave Bourbon and Rodriguez back to the French. So they held on to a few strategic ports and they gave Java back to the Dutch because they wanted to create goodwill after uh, the defeat of, of Bonaparte. But this was not what Minto actually wanted. So that port, I perceive with great concern, and sometimes with a little dismay, the tone of whimpering after peace arising gradually in England. Whimpering after peace, not because its objectives are attained, but because there are other interests. So, that is Lord Minto, and that is my mum. <laughs> Uh, that's a portrait of uh, her Lord Minto at the Asiatic uh, Library in Kolkata. <laughs> so I had to get a picture of her under it. This she strategically uh, positioned me, it's called the Temple of Fame. And it's in the grounds of the Barakpur government house. And we went there, we went there and she put me in front of this Temple of Fame and said, let me get a picture of you, obviously with an intent for me to write her book. So she was laying the groundwork. That Temple of Fame was dedicated to 24 British soldiers who were killed in action uh, in the takeover of the French islands and in the campaign for Java. And I don't know how to present my thanks, but obviously thanks are not enough. You know, there are, uh, you just have to stand in awe. Thank you. <laughs> Namaste. Thank you very much. Yes, um, I've got two questions really, uh, just to get the ball rolling. The first one is that you've lived with Minto for the last 50 years. <laughs> You're probably more familiar with him than you are with many other people in the world. Did you ever get the sense that you were getting too close to him as a biographer? and therefore that standing back and being objective about him was a difficult, a difficult thing to achieve? That's a very hard question and, and yes, I, I suppose I, I, am, I am close to Minto, uh, but there were areas, for example, where he was misled by John Malcolm uh, specifically. Uh, it's not to say that he was perfect in all of his dealings, but he did try uh, in the face of enormous challenges, like for example, the debt. So Richard, this combination of Richard Wellesley and Arthur Wellesley is a very interesting thing. You have your brother, who is the Governor General, and you, who are the General of the Armed Forces, you know, Arthur Wellesley. So you go on a rampage and say, hey, give me all your budget, I want to go and, and fight. So, so Minto was left with a huge debt uh, that he had to face and he, he had on his head uh, just prior to his actually coming to India, there was the Sepoy uh, mutiny that Barlow, his uh, uh, temporary in charge had to uh, check and he couldn't. So it was actually, um, 
It was actually Minto who came in there, completely new, fresh. You know, he was a man who was very influenced by Burke. And I'm a fan of Burke. So any fan of Burke is automatically I'm their fan. So, I mean, and he literally tried to establish, you know, a rule of law, a fair rule of law. He had to go and uh, essentially create treaties where none had uh, existed in the past with Singh and so on. So I think that what he did, you know, his successor, Lord Moira, right? Lord Moira was the, probably the earliest example of nepotism. Just placing somebody in there just because they're friends of the Duke of Buckinghamshire. What the heck? You can get a governor generalship of India as a result? Here you go. And Minto's uh, retirement was actually preempted. So Minto, and if you look at Minto's foreign policy background as well in Vienna, <coughs> in so he had a really wide-ranging view of the world, and he had a really wide-ranging view of British foreign policy, basically. And he was one of the earliest thinkers in that role. Unfortunately, with the first uh, Afghan war, with wars in Burma, uh, with the opium wars, it's a disaster. I assure you, had Minto been in power, you would not have had an opium war. Minto would have stood his ground. So yes, you are absolutely right. I am close to Minto. And uh, I don't... But facts speak for, for themselves. I suppose the second question yeah. is about his personality as a man, as a human being. Um, somebody once said to me, the best question you can ask of your subject as a biographer is, would you want to go out for dinner with him? Yes. <laughs> would you want to go out for dinner with Minto, and what sort of company would he keep with you? He'd be a quiet uh, person. He wouldn't speak a whole lot, but yeah, I would enjoy having dinner. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Should we open up the questions to the floor? My name is Sudhish, I'm starting my international <coughs> development. Uh, just out of curiosity, uh, does Pondicherry as a French enclave figure in this history at all? Oh sure, the, the French, so yeah, that's right, that's a good point. The French were off the mainland of India by 1799. They were just kicked off. Uh, Arthur Wesley had made sure that after Tipu's defeat at uh, Seringapatam, and that was uh, kind of, <laughs> Tipu, uh, had rockets and everything that the French helped him with, but Arthur Wellesley, the minute actually Tipu approached Bonaparte for help, the letter was actually intercepted by the British uh, spies, and Wellesley simply came into Seringapatam and destroyed it. But all of the French enclaves, Pondicherry, Karikal, Mahe, uh, were all returned to them, those little pockets, after the Congress of Vienna. So, but in terms of figuring, uh, Pondicherry as a center of the French East India Company is also uh, useful to note because that was their main center. And other than a few uh, really good leaders that they had, in general, the French East India Company suffered from a lack of coherent leadership. See, Bonaparte's approach to life was to acquire land. The British approach was not that. The British approach was to open up trading zones, trading partners. They said, we're going to trade with you. We can dump drugs into your country and call that trade. But that's trade. That's a good that we are offering for which there's a market. So uh, when the uh, monopolies of trade were uh, removed in 1813 with India and in 1833 with China, that led to a lot of free trade and the, therefore the downfall of the East India Company. The British, the British government took that on themselves. So the, the, the vision, in terms of vision, you've got to hand it uh, to the British government at the time, the Crown. Which is the, at the same time, they didn't want to nationalize it. They didn't want to nationalize uh, control. But they wanted to keep trade free enough where people were open to creating new markets. This helped the US. This helped uh, a lot of the countries in Southeast Asia. This opened up the spice trade, of course. Java didn't have anything else besides spices. Moluccas, the spice islands. They're critical areas which were brought out to the global market, which otherwise wouldn't have happened.
mentioned that Minto in some ways was quite liberal in his opposition to the slave trade and his support for labor union rights. I wondered how, in what way did he um, kind of explain these decisions? Were they kind of religiously motivated or did they come from a kind of principle of human rights? That's a very good question. He, he said one thing. He said, I don't want to learn a foreign language when I go to a new land because I will never be able to absorb the culture just by knowing a few words. So he was a guy who came from a very fair-minded perspective. So the points are excellent. Did he come from a religious bent? The answer is no. He refused to allow missionaries to have any hold on any local areas. So he opposed that. And what he believed was in human rights. And human rights included, so the rights of sepoys, the, the Indian soldiers who were used, their daily wages, how they were treated by their uh, British uh, officers. And of course, there was a dividing line between the officer class and the sepoy class. There were two different camps. But he always regretted that there was not more mixing, and that he couldn't do enough to uh, encourage that. This business of him going to Java and physically accompanying the expedition was unprecedented because he wanted to be there on site to ensure that the reforms that he came up with would be followed through and practiced. This is unique in the annals of any governor general. No governor general, no viceroy has accompanied I mean, all these uh, governor generals who went to war with Burma, right after him, with Burma, with uh, Marathas, uh, with uh, the uh, Gurkhas, you know, they, they just ended a series of uh, secessionary battles. Gurkhas, <coughs> Burma, Marathas. And then finally you ex extrapolate that to, to China. You start saying, we're going to send <coughs> tons and tons of opium. and. Chinese market is going to take it, is going to accept it, because that's what uh, what we consider as free trade. Uh, so, yeah. But Minto was very circumspect. He was very pointed <coughs> in his support of human rights. Did he call them human rights? Because that's obviously quite a modern term that we would use. Yes. Now, so, so he no he he believed he he believed in fairness. He said, mm -hmm. if I am if I am treating somebody as a slave. If I'm not giving them a duty, a, a, a defined daily wage, then I'm impacting on their lives. And he was very conscious of that. He was conscious of being fair. This business is John Malcolm, his right-hand man, who, who filled his ideas. John Malcolm was of the same bent as Arthur Wellesley, very militant. His idea behind going to Persia was to go to Fateh Ali Shah, grab him by the scruff of the neck and say, you, listen here, if you don't do what we say or if you don't do what we like, we're going to take over your islands, Kharak, in the Persian Gulf, was going to be a British base of operations. And Malcolm was simply going to occupy the island. So that didn't make a whole lot of sense. But Minto fell for him. So to answer uh, Professor Bowen, yes, this was an area where he made a, a mistake. Uh, and in, so the Crown had to send Harford Jones to, to Persia uh, to mediate. And Harford Jones was a Persian scholar. He was again like more Minto-ish than John Malcolm. But this was one instance where Lord Minto did make a fundamental error in believing the strategy of John Malcolm, which, thank heavens, he didn't follow through on. Priya? Actually, that question, my question kind of follows on quite neatly there um, to your remarks. I was just curious, um, I mean, you, you talk about Minto and the relationship with the Crown, the British Crown, the government of India, all that kind of coming together a bit more. And you also mentioned about how uh, in, within his diplomacy, he sends out emissaries to, to Persia, the court of Persia, uh, Afghanistan, to Lahore, to make all these treaties. And I was just curious then to ask you, what, what do you think was Minto's vision of working with royalty and working working them collectively, whether it was the British Crown or, you know, yeah, Asian, Central Asian... Absolutely, and that's a very fundamental point that you've raised, actually. So the Crown 
didn't want to nationalize the East India Company, right? So that's number one. They wanted to keep the company at arm's length. But at the same time, they realized that foreign policy, strategy, regional acts of war, of deciding trade partners and so on, were best done at the local level. So the Minto was not simply a representative of the crown. Although, and this is something to be noted, that the local rulers, for example, the rulers of Java, the rulers of the local states there, refused to acknowledge Minto as their equal. Because Minto was not their equal. Minto was a servant of a king. And they would, they would talk to the king. And so it was the same thing with uh, John Malcolm. John Malcolm going forth is an is a, um, ambassador of Minto, representing the East India Company, not the crown. So people always want to say, who is the crown? And this Minto was, was really, uh, that's a fundamental point that, that ran through all of the following governors, generals and viceroys, that what is their actual role? And Minto for the first time wanted to say, look, I am equal to the crown. I am, I may be a representative of the crown, but my decisions here are very much regional. And the crown is the crown. I mean, they're, they're, the uh, committees, the secret com committee, etc., etc., these people are not on the field with me. They have no idea of what I'm going through on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm actually the master of the budget. I'm a master of, of what I do with all my armies and my troops. They don't have a say. And in fact, the invasion of Java, he went through on his own without informing anybody <laughs> at HQ as to what his plans were. Because obviously they come down hard. And remember, letters and so on, these are not emails that you are sending, right? So letters take months to, to get back and forth, almost eight months. So one order. In fact, the tragedy is when Minto retired, he, he wanted to retire in essentially 1814. So, he was clear about that. So he sent a letter of retirement. In the meantime, Lord Moira, successor to him, is just placed there. So the Crown makes the de decision to appoint Lord Moira without informing Minto. Slap, slap, slap. Thank you very much for the most interesting paper. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Uh, you focused, and obviously your about foreign policy, so it's understandable. You focused on the kind of external dimensions of, yes. of uh, uh, Minto's appearing uh, in India, um, and um, you know you draw a contrast between sort of warlike and expansionary, warlike and expansionary uh, strategies of Richard and Arthur Wellesley, <coughs> compared to the kind of consolidation uh, approach of Minto. And I just wondered, um, of course, um, history in the last 20 years has emphasized, you know, rightly or wrongly, that what shaped the expansionary period wasn't simply the expansive ambitions of British statesmen and soldiers, but more the particular Indian media in which they found themselves, in which with the uh, recession moving political um, authority, but the, the kind of fluidity of politics and the great competition between Indian yeah. successor states. Yeah. Um, and that in a sense, um, uh, um, expansion was driven as much by those things as by pressures sure. from the metropolis. Sure. And I wonder how you see Minto um, in relation to those particular internal Indian pressures. Um, Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's a that's a very interesting and useful point. Thank you for bringing that up. Actually, uh, that's right. Uh, so when he came in, uh, fresh, literally off the boat, he spent so Barlow. Uh, his uh, stand-in for the moment, George Barlow. He faced a sepoy mutiny for the first time in, in the south, where mutinies never happened. So this was, this was really an unprecedented thing. 
So actually, Minto on his way to uh, Calcutta actually stopped for close to a month in Madras and uh, to try to mediate and to see, to just learn. He just was like a sponge. In fact, he didn't mediate. He was just absorbing all of the occurrences and the happenings. And yes, uh, when the threat of Bonaparte happened, basically, so he looked at it, as you said, from an external perspective. But from an internal perspective, for example, when dealing with Maharaja Ranjit Singh, he was very conscious. So, so he had lieutenants and ment uh, mentees, uh, people like uh, Metcalf, Elphinstone, Raffles. These were really great guys, bright people. And you know, with a little bit of mentorship, a little bit of polish, they became the statesmen that they are, uh, that they are recognized as. So yes. When dealing with the Sikhs, he was very conscious of two things. One is that Maharaja Ranjit Singh, for example, was taking over, was the greatest quote-unquote threat, only because he was unknown. So all unknown factors are threats. So you've got to learn more about them. So as he learned more about them, as he basically sent Metcalf over and so on and tried to reason and create a treaty with Maharaja Ranjit Singh, he was able to establish treaties and sub-treaties which allowed the Maharaja to retain his sense of respect and dignity and the territories to the right-hand side of the river Satlej. And he said that the minor kingdoms to the left bank, the Cis-Satlej states, would still be British protectorates. We do not seek to interfere in the day-to-day -day functioning of these states. But we wish to see that they have an independence which is also respected. So while I respect your idea of Sikhism and a pan-Sikh state, I still respect the rights of the individual rulers who by dint of their own history have managed to retain those lands. Why should you as a Maharaja of the Sikhs have a right over all the lands and why should you seek to conquer? So he didn't want to interfere with armed forces or anything, he just created an environment where both sides would be happy and that's exactly what it With the Marathas, the Peshwa was gaining in power uh, and Tipu, who was the last main armed threat, was totally removed. So really the Marathas and, and the Peshwa, while they were a, a threat, they really didn't have the strength to take on uh, the British uh, East India Company in any for any uh, sustained length of time. So they were they were kind of at uh, at a stable at a stable point uh, in their existences at that stage. But you know what happened was later. You see, when people like Lord Moira came to the fore and Lord Auckland, uh, they they were like sportsmen. They said, "Let's go grouse hunting, or you know, let's go shoot some deer, or let's just go on a on a campaign." Because we feel like it. What the heck does feel like it mean? You know, the Gurkhas, the Burmese, they, they were not threats. Why? And they, they finally, they, and huge sums of money. Minto had, was 8 million pounds in deficit when he came to power in 1807. And the, his mandate was that we want to see a return of between 1 to 2 million pounds annually from you, which didn't happen. Because, you know, British trade at that time was, was a disaster. It was based on uh, what they call bills of exchange. So bills of exchange are like checks, basically, written all over the world, IOUs taken back to London, payable in pound sterling, based, and there's no uh, foreign currency, there's nothing, there's no standard of exchange. So what is your valuation based on? Big zero. So when uh, Bonaparte, you know, Bonaparte can come and say, I cast the Berlin decree or a Milan decree. What nonsense is that? You're stabbing yourself in your own foot because you are destroying your own trade as, as a result. Because there are neutral parties who can bypass all your silly decrees. So it just doesn't make any sense. But this business of just simply going to war for its own sake, that actually destroyed the East India Company. Because in 1813, when the uh, Charter Act was passed to open up trade with India, and in 1833, when the Charter Act, Second Charter Act was passed, 
to open up trade with China, uh, the uh, monopoly of trade was destroyed, and the East India Company was was that basically. They they wanted to monopolize trade. Wondering about you know since you began with Burke, yeah. uh, as you probably know, there's been a, a, sort of a, a resurgence of interest in Burke and Empire and Empire. Uh, but whether, but whereas Burke in Ireland, Burke in America has been extensively, you know, those things have been raked over. Uh, Burke in India, it's only the impeachment of Warren Hastings, so that's the primary focus. And what you've given us is uh, something quite different. Uh, if Minto really was his pupil yeah. uh, and was, as it were, carrying out Burkean style uh, policy, yeah. uh, that gives you a, a, a quite different picture. Yeah, it really does. Burke's own legacy yeah. and the formation of liberal imperialism. It, it so really I wonder does. if you could say something more. Sure, there's a letter that uh, Minto wrote to uh, Burke's wife. Shortly after he was due to retire and go back, and he said, uh, "I, I wish I had that quote for you. It's so beautifully written." He said, "I owe a debt of gratitude to your husband, and he was my teacher, and I will continue in his honor and in his name all my future work after what I've already done." When he, had, he he came back in 1814, and he died within a month of his return. So he was given an early, it's a very tragic story. Um, he was very young when he passed away, uh, mid-50s. It's just one of those things. But he was very clear in his thinking. And his thinking was that we are not going to interfere in people's culture. We're not going to interfere in their religion. We are not going to impose our diktats on anyone and we are certainly going to be opposed to any uh, influence that is contrary to this, including slave trade, including that. There was no treatment of labor at all, as you know, and the colonies were disasters. The Portuguese, French, the Dutch, absolute disaster. They didn't care two hoots about who they were going uh, to manage, uh, what the consequences might be. So, you know, there are these state, few statesmen who really stand out. And later, later viceroys and governor generals, too. Lord Ripon, Venting. And these, these were incredible people. Not, not only were they scholars, I mean, Venting abolished Sati, uh, talked about, you know, the reform movement in education with Ramo and Roy. It's, it's unbelievable. Their statement. Then you have Dickie Mountbatten. I mean, at the end of the day. I mean, it's just the, the British sort of legacy is, is completely a mixed bag. But there are these stars who, who literally come out. And I don't know how. I, I, I have not seen French equals. I have not seen Dutch equals. Maybe I haven't studied. Uh, their history as well, but I can tell you that they are not those kind of characters. Bonaparte came close, but Bonaparte was very one-dimensional. Very, very one-dimensional. One all he cared about was, was conquest, at all costs. Any and all costs. I mean, after signing a treaty with Russia, how on earth can you think of invading Russia? And the same mistake was repeated by Herr Hitler. So, that just doesn't make any sense. He, he went for Russia just for fun. <laughs> uh, any other... Uh, could I just ask a couple yeah. of things? One of my please could yous to people who write theses <laughs> is often, please could you move away from the detail of the subject and set context? And I think that's incredibly well done in this book. A couple of examples in it. There's a, an excellent appendix in of how the East India Company was run, how the directors were chosen, and all that, that happened. Not to do with military, but good background to the subject. Also, I noted the, the idea that the French were a threat to India. Napoleon invades Egypt. 
Was it really a runner? It don't seem to be. But the daft idea to me that there's plenty in there that showed the French thought about it very seriously. People like Talleyrand are writing reports on how to do it, what will come of it. So the book, I think, is a very rich book in whether the possibilities for tangents we explore them fully. Thank you. I mean, in a way, the, you know, one of the things that interests me about it is, uh, of course, it places India in a story uh, where it normally is, for which it's normally quite marginal. The Napoleonic Wars, uh, you know, it's seen as a sideshow at most. And in a way, what you've done, or what your mother has done, is to make the role of India more visible and, uh, if not absolutely at the core of the project, then certainly central and important enough to merit some consideration, but also uh, with um, uh, uh, the, the well, in, in more than one way, as you just said, Peter, that Napoleon's own, uh, while as we know from the more recent works on the invasion of Egypt, on Napoleon's invasion of Egypt, uh, he always is mentioning India and has India on his mind, and heading off the British and, and all the rest. So Nelson and uh, all of these apparently Mediterranean uh, events have a bearing, and sometimes quite an important bearing, on events much further uh, east, uh, India uh, in particular. And indeed, the British seem to have understood it in, in this manner. I mean, if you look at the placement of statues in Trafalgar Square, it's all about India. Uh, you know, I mean, there's Nelson on his column and everyone else. Very true. Uh, so uh, the, the, the the, the making of kind of imperial thinking mm -hmm. in this period um, is what I find so fascinating. Mm -hmm. But also, going back to my last question, the, the hitherto rather neglected role of ideas. Uh, so, you know, it's always been, or perhaps it's a, um, a kind of gross generalization for me to say this, but, you know, you give the French the ideas, the French Empire, you know, Napoleonic Code, they have ideas, it's full of ideas, and the British are all meant to be about empiricism and, uh, you know, just sort of constraints and compulsions of a purely pragmatic sort. Uh, but in a way, there seems to be a kind of flip, you know, where, it, especially with the figure of Burke, it might not be, uh, it, might, it might not be a kind of, um, how should I put it, uh, an empire driven solely by ideas or by the same ideas, yeah, but to actually show how important they were apart from uh, uh, providing ways in which people have more or less subconsciously frame their acts. Uh, and how important actually they were in policy, both in India but with the kind of global dimensions of them, is what I find um, so interesting here. I, that's absolutely right, and it's due to modern thought and thing. This gentleman here, Professor Hugh Byrne, East India Company, I mean, I think, not to flatter you too much, Professor Boyd, but no, go ahead. <laughs> but the integrated thought process around East to your point about this this is a new thought process with due respect. I mean when history was written history has also evolved, right? Just like everything else is evolving. So the approach to understanding, let's say the role of India, the global impact on what was going on in Europe is very true and has to be analyzed. British banking, the British National Bank, when they hoarded gold, gold bullion, right, because to, to artificially raise the price of gold, India suffered. And the finance industry in India, and Asiya Siddiqui brings this out beautifully in her work on the finance of the East India Company, where Indian banks were not allowed to flourish. And with the result of the restriction of the hoarding of gold bullion by the British uh, National Bank, that impacted global trade and it was done in a very deliberate manner. So when you have uh, derivative swaps and uh, credit default swaps in this day and age, it's not very different from what uh, games were being played uh, by the East India Company and by their global trading partners. But to be fair to the French, the French were in a turmoil because after the French Revolution, basically in uh, 1789, their government apparatus was thrown out of whack. So this uh, Republican government that you had, and so when Bonaparte came forward and said, I'm the Emperor of France, 
there was nobody really to oppose him. And so the French operated in a kind of uh, non-governmental machinery. They operated on the whims of one man. Whereas I think that's a huge contrast in general. And I, uh, I'm not an expert, but I invite historians in this room to, to paint a picture of the French during that time. And you know, I think that has a role to, to play in, in how they were not able to establish good governance in areas. But the British were able to throw up very imposing personalities who could completely dominate with big ideas. Robert Clive, Warren Hastings, I would put Minto up there himself. Um, yet they seem to come much better rooted in a philosophy. Minto was a man of the Enlightenment, for example. Yeah, you know, yeah. we, don't, we haven't discussed that yet. He comes from a Scottish background. Yeah. Uh, lots of ideas circulating in Edinburgh mm -hmm. uh, about uh, Burkean philosophy. Um, in a way that is not happening in France. Mm. So while these are, in a sense, the cult of the personality, there's a lot more of the hinterland behind them, I think, than it is with the French. So, perfectly Burkean conclusion, basically, <laughs> um, uh, our discussion uh, today. So please join me in thanking uh, the